In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In preparation for this morning's sermon, I found myself wondering what happened to the guy from last week's Gospel, the man who was beaten by the thieves and left for dead as he traveled the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Good Samaritan had gone to him and bound up his wounds and poured in oil and wine. He had set the beaten man on his own beast and he had taken him to an inn and, and looked after him. And then, before moving on, we know that the Good Samaritan arranged for the man's ongoing care with the inn's owner. Then what? I wonder if that guy ever went to visit the Good Samaritan and thanked him for saving his life. I wonder if they became friends. I wonder if the guy took his wife and kids and introduced them to the Good Samaritan. These questions came to me from something John Keeble said in his sermon on this passage. He asked his congregation this, consider how very many persons, either for themselves or for their near relations or friends, must have tasted of the miraculous mercy of the blessed Jesus, and then reflect on how very few showed any sympathy with him at the time of his cruel death. How many in that crowd which cried, crucify him, crucify him, how many had themselves received from Jesus in their persons or in some other person dear to them as their own, how many had received either sight or hearing or the use of their limbs or deliverance from evil spirits or life itself by a miracle? It's a sobering thought, and Keeble proved his point by saying, when Jesus' disciples were assembled shortly after his ascension into heaven, the number of names together of disciples was only about 120. Of all the people that had come to him with their sick, at the end, the Bible mentions 120. That said, the grateful response of one person out of 10 should not surprise us in today's gospel. Only one man returned to give glory to God after being healed of leprosy, after being cleansed, completely healed, and ultimately receiving his life back. This miracle meant that the bitter isolation that had been imposed on these men was over and that they could be reunited with their families. It meant that their place in the community would be restored and that they could begin to live again. But only one of the ten came back and thanked the Lord Jesus for his gift of healing. 
Twenty years ago this month, Harrison McCain, the co-founder of McCain Foods, a giant frozen food company, New Brunswick born, the number one French fry company in the world, Harrison suffered a debilitating heart attack while at a meeting in Regina. He was 73 years old at the time. He collapsed on a sidewalk and a passerby that could have been you or me saved his life by administering CPR. Eventually, he was transferred to the cardiac care unit in St. John, where he was able to see where, where his parish priest was able to visit him. Due to his condition, the visit was short, but the one thing Harrison McCain wanted to say was that he would be in church the next Sunday. The priest told him not to worry and to give himself some time. No, no, he said, I want to go to church. A lot has been written about Harrison McCain. He was a charismatic, no-nonsense figure. He had won all kinds of awards, designations, and he was internationally recognized. McCain Foods employed 12,000 people in the late 90s in 11 countries, and in 1998 had annual sales of over $5 billion. McCain had also experienced great sadness in his life, the death of his parents, the death of two brothers, the death of his wife Marion, affectionately known as Billy, and the tragic snowmobiling death of his son Peter. The point is this, Harrison had every reason, according to the secular mind, he had every reason, to ignore the Lord and to boycott church. But no, his first priority after that massive heart attack was to attend on Sunday. He didn't make that first Sunday because he was still in the hospital, but sure enough, as soon as he was discharged, he came. It was a sight the congregation will never forget. The service had started in the little wooden Church of the Good Shepherd in Florenceville, a church that holds a maximum of 100 people. Suddenly the door opened and three people appeared, Harrison, his nurse, and his son. He was thin and his clothes looked baggy on him. The nurse and his son Mark had their arms around his waist to support him. Harrison carried a pillow, a regular old pillow with a white pillowcase, something to sit on because he was so frail and bony. Amazingly, he stayed for about 30 minutes before leaving during a hymn. But he was back the next week and stayed a bit longer and on from there as his strength increased. Why? Like the leper in today's gospel, he returned to give thanks to God. Maybe you're thinking, that's a really nice story, but I haven't had that kind of experience. I never had a heart attack or an accident or any kind of life-threatening emergency. 
Well, actually, we have. All of us. All of us have. John Keeble raised, raised this point. He asked the congregation that had gathered on this Sunday in 1835 at Surinchester, about 80 miles west of London, he asked them this, what if by the ten lepers cleansed, what if what's really represented there are not only people who have received some physical healing from God, but what if represented there are the whole body of Christian people, that is, of baptized persons throughout the world? He went on to point out that the lepers were cleansed. And that usually is what the Bible speaks of in reference to holy baptism, cleansing. In his words, are we not all born in sin, unclean and leprous in God's sight? Is not the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior the only fountain to wash away that sin and make such as God may delight to look on, make us something that God delights to look on? And is not holy baptism the one appointed way whereby once and for all the souls and bodies of the children of wrath may be washed clean in the blood of Christ and may be made the children of grace? I never thought about today's gospel like that. But Keeble is right. We all are born as lepers. We are born with a fallen, less than perfect, sinful human nature. We need to be healed, to be cleansed. And it's only through the precious blood of God's only begotten Son that this cleansing is possible. We need to be washed spiritually, but really in the blood of Christ. And that's what the Lord offers to do for us in baptism. And yet, as we all know, how many return to give thanks? You know the answer. Not many. In fact, very few. But there's something else about this. Although we could lament and spiral off on the not few and go on and on about the ingratitude of those who are baptized and never again darken the door of the church, Keeble asked his congregation to look inward. The truth is, he said, with all of our talking about the gospel, we have gradually come down to such a low, unworthy standard of evangelical holiness and perfection that it is hard for us to conceive how the great things spoken by the prophets and apostles about the regenerate condition should belong to every baptized person. He asked his congregation to look inward for holiness. And he said, we've dropped 
the ball to a low, low standard. If that's what Keeble thought about the state of holiness among church members in 1835, what can we say now? His point is that having been cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb, we should live holy lives if we're truly thankful. I, for one, am a very poor example, and I find this to be a humbling, albeit important point that Keeble makes. The low standard that I've settled for. So what should we do? What should we do in 2020? Living in a culture that doesn't expect much. Conditioned by a culture that really thinks most things, if not everything, is okay. As long as we don't hurt somebody. What should we do? As members of a branch of the church that really has settled for a very low standard of holiness, what should we do? The Lord has given us a key place to start, a place where we will find redemption and forgiveness. And it's something that's very doable. It is so doable. Come. That's it. Come. Come on Sunday and participate in the church's great act of thanksgiving, the Holy Eucharist. The service given to us by the Lord Jesus himself. If you're still with me, would you turn, I'd invite you to turn to page 65 of the prayer book. Actually, there is no page 65. It's just the page that follows page 64. The title page we're looking for says, in capital letters, the Holy Communion. And then underneath, the Holy Communion or the Holy Eucharist. Many of us have grown up with the title Holy Communion. And it certainly has its good meaning and purpose. But Holy Eucharist does as well, even though it's somewhat unfamiliar to us. Holy Eucharist. It literally means thanksgiving. It describes the action of the church, gathering around the Lord's table and giving thanks. Giving thanks to God for his mercy in Christ. Central to and at the very core of the Eucharist is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We thank God for the precious blood which his son shed at Calvary to save us miserable lepers. Us miserable lepers. You know, the church, I don't know about the new churches, but the old churches were designed for this purpose, that the Holy Eucharist, the great act of thanksgiving, would be the thing central to a person's viewpoint when they entered. So here's what I'm talking about. 
When you come in the church, what do you see? Front and center, the Lord's table, the altar. What happens at the Lord's table? We celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the older churches actually had what's called a chancel. This chancel is a little bit wider, but some of the smaller churches have walls that come in this, this far where the choir sits. And the point is that it draws your sight in to focus on what God has done for us in Christ. The newer churches don't have the chancels. It's just a wide-ranging wall. But the chancel, which Bishop Medley would not consecrate churches without, was, was in order to draw your eye to what God has done for us in Christ, to the central act of worship the church is to have, the act of thanksgiving for the, for the cross, for the means of everlasting life, for the new life which is ours, as members of the body of our Lord. So what should we do in response to our own healing? Know that, dear friends, that you have been healed, you are being healed, and you will be completely healed. And there is one antidote that is being used in this healing, and it is the precious blood of Christ. And the Word of God makes this antidote known to us. The Word that is given with power and speaks of the new life by the Holy Spirit. In response to the gift of healing, mercy, and salvation we've received, in response to the new life that we've been given, after lying half dead on the side of the road, what should we do? Gather. Gather in the church for Holy Eucharist. You know, this is the thing. COVID-19 has done two things for us. On the one hand, it's made us yearn for gathering together. And this is one of the things that set the church apart in the first 400 years, was coming together as one. When we say the creed, it's no accident or random thing that we face in the same direction. We are united as one. The other thing that COVID, there's lots of things that COVID-19 has done, but one of the other things that COVID-19 has done is deny us the chalice. The common cup. A sign of our unity in Christ. It's not about getting it's not just about getting some wine. It's really not about that. It's about partaking of the precious blood of Christ as one. In him, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to gather together as one on Sunday in the great act of thanksgiving. We need to receive the precious body and blood of our Savior. And really, it's on to us now as things, as, as we've been in this for six months, it's on to us now to grab hold. 
For those who are sick and in pain and cannot come, we should ask them what it means to be able to gather together. I bet with tears in their eyes, people would say, if only I could be there. The standard of our branch of the church, of me as a miserable sinner, the bar has been set very low. Let's not let this pandemic drop it further and settle for having church without gathering together. It's a different story if you're sick, if you're in pain. That's a different deal altogether. But don't settle. Let us not settle. Come as soon as we can to receive the precious body and blood of Christ. The world doesn't understand, I'm almost done, the world doesn't understand this <clears throat> because it's a, the world thinks that this is a science thing. It's not for us. It's a spiritual, real partaking of the grace of God as the body of Christ which we've been made through Christ by the Holy Spirit. What will keep us what will keep us from gathering? Well, fear. Fear in this pandemic will keep us from gathering. I'm not talking about being reckless. That's not what I'm talking about. We have to be careful. We have to obey all of this, the rules that are put out for us in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. What will, what will stop us? Fear. What else will stop us? The thought that we don't need God, that we don't need to gather together. The thought that I am sufficient of myself. The secular mindset will stop us because it encourages us to believe that we are okay. Dear friends, as those who've been grafted into the body of Christ and who live by the Spirit, we know otherwise. And now unto God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be ascribed all might, majesty, dominion, power, honor, and glory, as is most justly due, henceforth and forevermore. Amen.